Because it's time to remember some years presented by our friends at Pagliacci Pizza and turn it back to 2001. Because Pagliacci is cold-blooded, and so is 2011. Oh, definitely the highlight of the year. Uh, A fascinating year for the Huskies who, back in 2010, missed out on five-star prospect Terrence Jones after he initially committed to UW and later changed his mind and ended up at Kentucky. God, we should have Katie on to to talk about her thoughts about that. Still added a recruiting class headlined by Terrence Ross, his teammate at Jefferson High School in Portland. Huskies played in Maui Invitational for the first and only time in program history. Crushing an early Tony Bennett Virginia team, 106-63 in their opener, setting up a matchup in the semifinal against Terrence Jones in number eight Kentucky, losing 74-67, and then losing 76-71 to number two Michigan State in the consolation game. Uh, we held our own in both of those. Uh, I remember it snowed. This was Thanksgiving week, which I guess now we have always is. Uh, By definition, yes. But it snowed in Seattle that week, and right, so we yeah. we were stuck in watching those. I remember it being really dark, but just destroying Virginia, which was very fun coming off having Tony Bennett in the Pac-12, ten. Yeah, and it was it was specifically uh, the Huskies finished non-conference play eight and three with three losses coming by a combined thirteen points. They then started Pac-10 play seven and one, but slumped, finishing eleven and seven. And came into the Pac-10 tournament on the bubble before they beat Wazoo 89-87 and 87 in the opener despite 43 points from Clay Thompson. Still remember watching that game at the famous cousin Katie's house. And then blew out Oregon in the semifinal, a game that I do not remember at all. I, yeah, that one is, that's the... Lost history. Yeah, I, I, I don't know what part of the sandwich it is, but it's the bad part. <laughs> it's, it's the most forgettable part of the sandwich. It's a really bad part of the sandwich. <laughs> the bread is more memorable than the filling. <laughs> really, I suppose this, the sandwich that they made in this tournament is a very good bread sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> and then used Thomas's game winner to beat number 16 Arizona 77-75 in overtime. And the second consecutive Pac-10 tournament championship, of course, immortalized on CBS by Gus Johnson. God, nobody else could have called that shot. This was, I think, the most fun three days in a row in Washington Husky history, basketball. Like, just one after another. Like, that game against Clay Thompson, like, I mean, do I remember any of the beats from it? Not really. But, like, it, when I think about the game and the things that I feel were, like, this, we were watching an incredible basketball game. And, like, seeing what Clay Thompson did going against Isaiah Thomas and that, it was just, like, this is fun to watch. Like, we yes. wanted the Huskies to win, but, like, the, the the situation is amazing. And it was, like, I don't know if we really fully anticipated how good of an NBA player Clay Thompson would be. But it was I 100% like, did not. I was very skeptical of Clay. As he was a player. freaking monster in that game. Mostly because of the game his sophomore year where he was like pouting on the court at UW. 
That was a rough go for him. I remember, yeah, one, I remember Clay seeming like quite a quite the baby in college, which now I think he has the reputation of being pretty tough after like tearing his Achilles yeah. and shooting free throws. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, but that one, where it was just like, I think that was like a the later game, and it was just like we went to Katie's for Last it. Game of the night, yeah. And we went there. I think it was us. Katie and Ben and Chris Smith was there. I'm pretty sure Chris was with us each night. And then it was just like control C, control V each day in a row of just like, like that's the best thing about, you know, the NCAA tournament is extremely fun. Conference tournaments when your team is good are pretty fun because you're just like constantly watching your team play. Like there's no other situation where you get to watch the Huskies play three days in a row like that. But if they're winning, well, you're just like I mean, back the other for situation more. situation is the preseason tournament. So well, we had both of those. I suppose it was the same in the Maui Invitational, but there was a lot of disappointment in the Maui Invitational. <laughs> there, was there was a lot of being yeah. like so close. Uh, but all, all of that, and there's just like we're back for more. It's, it's like you wake up, it's like rinse, repeat. You're right there, and you're watching them play and beating Oregon. Like you beat Wazoo, Oregon, and then Arizona en route to the Pac-10 Pac champion. This is Pac-10 at the time, right? Yes. En route to the Pac-10 championship. Like, you could not choose a better group of three teams to beat on the way to winning the Pac-10. You'll know it's the Pac-12 when we start losing to Colorado and Utah every year <laughs> in the tournament. But right, uh, there's also, no, like, Arizona State game in there. There's no Oregon State. Like, this is who you want to play. Stanford might be on that mix for me. Stanford? But... We're talking about Stanford. I love that UCLA wasn't the team. Um, but no, it's like definitely not. Arizona has been the long-term foil in the Pac-10. They've been probably the best team in the Pac-10 since we've been paying attention to college basketball. Then you have your two biggest rivals right there. Like, that is who you want. Not Stanford. Come on. I, I consider Stanford a pretty big rival. Maybe more Mark than Mark Madsen. Basketball. No way. So, okay. Uh, so this was also a. I feel like has UW ever played UCLA in the Pac-10 tournament? I mean, obviously they have, but I don't yeah, they definitely it. have. I don't remember it, but they definitely have. Uh, they they played one of the. Uh, uh, they played them in like 2004, I think maybe. Anyways, this is also a big coming out tournament for Terrence Ross, who had not started a game prior to the Pac-10 tournament. Started all three of those games, uh, averaged 15.3 points per game. And really gave the first glimpse of the NBA, you know, quality NBA player that he was going to become. Okay, so the Huskies get the number seven seed in the East region. They face number 10, Georgia, in the opening round, beating them 68-65 on Friday night in Charlotte before a 9 a.m. Pacific start on Sunday versus number two, North Carolina. In North Carolina, right? In Charlotte, yes. Oh, yeah, in Charlotte. Just so, like this is where you just rue the fact that the Huskies had all these close losses, particularly the ones in Maui, because like they win a couple more of those. They're a five seed. Oh, they, you know, they were a is better totally team different. than a seven seed. I mean, they lost to Michigan State by two. I remember watching that Kentucky game, and there were definitely points where I was like, "We're gonna win this." Oh, for sure. I mean, they finished the season ranked 16th in Ken Palm and 334th in the luck rating. Really? So, I mean, this was right up there with the best of the Romar teams statistically, and they went 24-11. and 11. That's so frustrating. So, they played North Carolina tough 
end up losing 86-83 with a controversial call in the closing seconds when referees refused to review the amount of time on the clock for the possible tying play, uh, one that was basically admitted everyone said was an error immediately afterwards. And maybe playing this game in Charlotte might have had something to do with that. I don't know if I would say that specifically. Come on. This was the basically the worst possible setup you could have to play a game. Like, to, to you could not be playing in front of less of your fans, and then also at a worse time. <laughs> yeah, I don't know that that many fans were going to make it make it just about anywhere. This was a uh, North Carolina team that ended up losing to Kentucky in the uh, Elite Eight. I believe Kendall Marshall was injured in that game, and that that really cost them fairly dearly. I, I just remember the whole game. Oh, God, who was there? Didn't they have, like, a pretty soft, like, freshman star? Harrison Barnes? Was it Harrison Barnes? I guess it was his sophomore year that Kendall Marshall got hurt. I don't think it was actually this year, now that I think about it. I just remember watching that game and being like, I feel like we're actually better than this team. I mean, Kavai Kenpom, they were number 16 and number 15. So, basically equivalent teams. By the way, Michigan State actually turned out not to be that good that year, I think. I'm not seeing where they ended up in Ken Palm. Oh, they ended up number 45. Wow. So it was not quite as impressive as it looked. But that was a game the Huskies led, wow, literally the entire game until the final two minutes. This, this felt like a Romar season. So this was the last great Romar year, right? It was the last NCAA tournament Romar year. I mean, it, man, well, well, you know, next year, the next year was interesting. Is it the Roten year? Is that 2012? It is the Roten year. Oh my god! It was Roten. <laughs> Just th- this, and I, I don't mean to to say anything really negative about Lorenzo Romar here, because Lorenzo Romar led the Huskies to the highest possible peaks. This felt like a Romar team, whereas like. The quintessential play, well, the quintessential play was the cold-blooded shot, which was just Isaiah Thomas doing his thing. Like, I don't, I'm not going to say that Romar did anything for that. But, like, them not being able to get the ball inbounds against North Carolina, a baseline inbounds, and the Huskies being so completely incapable of doing that was just, like, it always felt like, for whatever reason, with the Romar teams, like, they just were never, they never quite were able to do the, like, the last bits of being a really good team, like being like the precision that you needed. And I felt like that's always what the Romar teams lacked. It was like, you just couldn't, they couldn't get an inbounds in at the end of that game. You know, it's like, why, why, what, what is wrong here? You know? <sighs> so an interesting year for the Seahawks. Uh, that was the summer of the NFL lockout as well as the NBA lockout as we'll talk about in a bit. Uh, after that concluded, Matt Hasselbeck signed with Tennessee as a free agent to mentor their first-round pick, Jake Locker. <laughs> the Seahawks replaced him with Traveris Jackson, uh, unfortunately RIP, as we discussed a few weeks ago, who had started in new offensive coordinator Daryl Bevel's offense in Minnesota. The Seahawks started 2-6, and six, including a 6-3 loss at Cleveland in Week 7. With Charlie Whitehurst at quarterback, that mercifully we did not see. Yes, I think it's 
generally considered to be, maybe aside from some Arizona games, one of the worst, worst games of the Pete Carroll era. Uh, and we were driving back. Wow, so this was the year we drove to Stanford. Yeah, uh, talk about that. that we were in, in the car af- after that game, driving back, and we might have been listening on the radio. Like, I'll be totally honest here. We didn't pay that much attention to the Seahawks this year. That is correct. <clears throat> there was more attention paid to Red Zone and our fantasy football teams in all likelihood. I think there was something about the like previous seasons that made us pretty jaded about the Seahawks. Um, and this was like, I remember we were playing Salad Bowl one time, and one of the clues was suck for luck. And we wanted to see it, which is hilarious because the Seahawks ended up with a better quarterback in that draft. Um, but it was like, we, we felt like as conscientious NFL fans, like the Seahawks should tank for a year. Yeah, I mean, there seemed to be two great quarterback prospects in that year's draft, neither of which were the ones the Seahawks drafted, who is <laughs> clearly the best quarterback from that draft. So things worked out. Uh, the team found stride in the second half of the season, winning five out of six games, including a Thursday night football blowout of the Philadelphia Eagles' quote-unquote dream team that year, Oh my God. as you'll recall, to reach 7-7 seven and seven and have an outside chance at a playoff berth they then lost 19-17 to to the 49ers on Christmas Eve to fall out of playoff contention before losing a meaningless finale at Arizona in overtime to finish 7-9. and And that game I have no recollection of at all. That Thursday night game, again, it's so weird how little attention we paid. I feel like we just like needed a year off from the Seahawks or something. Uh, but in hindsight, it was maybe one of the, not the most, it, it was an extremely fun season because you could see that like the defense that would lead them to a Super Bowl was coming together this year. Right. It was like almost all of the pieces were in place. And then there was, you know, even though Traveris Jackson did an adequate job as a starting quarterback, there was this one big hole left to fill and, and that, that, that was going to happen. But yeah, I mean, the defense uh, improved from 29th to 10th in DVOA as the Seahawks overall improved from 30th as NFC West champions in 2010 to 19th. Uh, and the key, the key addition, of course, the Legion of Boom taking shape with fifth-round pick Richard Sherman becoming a starter midway through his rookie season, and the rest was history. I remember that there. Was, so on that that game, it was it was somewhere around midseason. Maybe it was before that Philadelphia game uh, that Marshawn got good. Right. The, the fabled story was that I think Tom Cable told Marshawn like how to run in a zone scheme. Am I remembering that correctly? I don't remember that specifically. It was like Tom Cable was like, you you need to wait and find the holes in the zone scheme. And then for whatever reason, like Marshawn Lynch was not a good running back for most of his career before he, this halfway through the season. And then whatever happened, it just clicked halfway through. And it was like, even though the beast quake happened, like he wasn't a good running back on the Seahawks. In that that season, the half season that he spent with them before then, uh, he averaged three point five yards per carry in two thousand ten. I mean, it's this, yeah. pretty incredible how things change for him. I mean, if if we're being running backs don't having a running backs don't matter perspective, the offensive line probably got a lot better, uh, and then also the passing game got a lot better to free up holes for Marshawn Lynch to become a better runner. But like, it did happen pre Russell Wilson, where like. That Philadelphia game, the carry that he had, where he runs... This was a home game. I didn't have season tickets this year. Um, and he runs into that, like, scrum of players and then just emerges out the other side. It was like, even now, like, I wish that I'd seen it in person 
it's one of the most incredible carries I've ever seen. Just like, where did he come from? You know, do you know the play that I'm talking about? I don't remember that play specifically. I, I only, I'm not sure if I watched that entire game because I, that night, was headed to uh, the Seattle University game where they were hosting Stanford. We should go through the amount of meaningless college basketball games that you went to <laughs> instead of watching Seahawks games. <laughs> I mean, I watched the first half of it, at least, in I was at Oscars. Which, by the way, 2011 is the year of Oscars. Wow. Oh, R.I.P. Poor one out. Is it gone? Oscars? I don't know. Yeah, it's been gone for like five years. Where have you been? <laughs> Not at Oscars. Uh, Clearly. No one has. But but I do remember Christmas Eve, though, against the 49ers. That game was like, I, I felt like it was the moment, you know, when you're like not paying attention to something and everybody else is like, this is great. And then you're just like, oh, fuck, what have I been missing out on? I'm an idiot. I didn't watch season one of Game of Thrones. Like, all of a sudden you're just like, well, oh, everybody else was right and I'm dumb. And I think it was that Christmas Eve game against the Niners where I was like, Wait, I know Traveris Jackson is the quarterback, and I'm upset that they're not going to get a good draft pick or whatever, but, like, this football team is actually really fun. Yeah, it was exciting. I mean, we were fired up for that game. And not not necessarily in a way that, like, we were upset when they lost. It definitely didn't ruin our Christmas that they lost it, but it was like... No, no, this was, wasn't a Cardinals game. And and those Chiefs, those Chiefs, those 49ers, I should say, were really good. I think that was the year that they were the number one seed in the NFC and lost the NFC Championship game. To the Packers? Uh, to the Saints, right? Oh, they lost that like shootout game to the Saints, and we were at or we were at Angelo's while it was happening. Correct. I think yeah. that's that year. Uh, over the last nine games, by the way, Marshawn Lynch nine hundred and forty-one <clears throat> yards, four point five yards per carry. So yeah, he definitely got it at that point. And uh, yes, they well they beat the Saints in the divisional round. They lost the conference championship to the New York Football Giants. Oh man. <laughs> Wow. Future Hall also, of Famer, Eli Manning. I want you to put some respect on the 2011-12 Stanford Cardinal, who had four NBA players on that roster. I'm just saying, I, I'm not talking about the individual teams. I'm talking about the programs in general. Does that make sense? Fine. Stanford is not a rival of UW men's basketball. No, this wasn't UW. I was, I, you missed that. I was at Seattle U versus No, I know. Stanford. Oh, you're saying I should put some respect that you were going to go view Stanford play against yeah. Seattle U? Great. Yeah, yeah good one. I, I don't... Those I remember nine, when nine this minutes happened. For Dwight Powell. I was playing against Marshawn Lynch in fantasy, and I was furious about how good he was playing. I like, I'm willing to admit this, because I was like, Marshawn Lynch fucking sucks. Why is he playing so good? I think he scored like three touchdowns in that Eagles game. I uh, definitely had two... This was, at the time, my worst fantasy year ever. <laughs> That's what I remember 2011 for. <laughs> yeah, 22 carries, 148 yards, two touchdowns. In that one from Marshawn Lynch. All right, so we mentioned earlier the trip to Stanford. That, sadly, was not to go see Dwight Powell in company. That was to see <laughs> Dwight Powell. We're like, yeah, let's hit, hit the road, boys. We're going to see Dwight Powell. <laughs> which found its stride offensively that year. Uh, so this was Keith Price taking over as starting quarterback from Jake Locker. He had made one start the year before. 
They survived a scare from future CFL Most Outstanding Player, Bo Levi Mitchell, in wow. Eastern Washington to win the opener 30-27. to uh, Then lost 51-38 at number 11, Stanford. They started uh, uh, Pac-10. Nebraska, not Stanford. I'm sorry, yes, Nebraska. They started Pac-10 play 3-0 and and entered the top 25. It is always terrible when the Huskies enter the top 25 <laughs> before they go play at Stanford. Oh, my God. It's the same thing that happened before the Toby Gerhardt game a couple of years yep. ago. This time they're going to play at number 7 Stanford, Andrew Luck's senior year. We caravan down to, uh, 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 to stay with our cousin Chris and his wife and go to this game. They were in Davis, drive down to Palo Alto for the game. And it was a very pleasant tailgate. Lovely day. The campus is beautiful. The uh, game was not so great. The campus is beautiful? Oh, Stanford's campus is very attractive. No, no, thank you. Not for me. Uh, not for me, boss. We were tailgating in, like, it, it's called the farm, right? It is, yes. We were tailgating on, like, I mean, not that it's, like, great confines tailgating at UW, but, like, I remember we were just sort of, like, backed into a, a dusty road. I think we were on grass, as I recall it. But also there was, uh, there was, like, the palm trees. It was pleasant. Uh, I will say, <clears throat> this was in October, right? Uh, yes, October 22nd. Northern California in mid-October. Freaking incredible. <laughs> so I, I will give it up for that. The drive down there of like ha- having a sunny drive, and you're like, damn, it is 80 degrees. First ever time that I ever had Pliny the Elder. Yeah. Uh, I uh, we just like went to the co-op and picked it up because that's the thing you can do in Northern California. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> uh, we came back and we had In-N-Out. Yep. Uh, this was the first ever time that I had a Neapolitan shake from In-N-Out, um, which I remember was suggestion? really pretty life-altering, probably. I think we were in a car together, so that was pretty incredible. We actually were not in a car together. You might have told me about it beforehand. I don't know. <clears throat> I, I recall that I rode with Chris. I think this was the first ever time that I like really got In-N-Out. Like, it made sense to me, you know? Full page ad. You're welcome. <laughs> you and everybody else. <laughs> well, I was the one who explained it to you. So the game itself, Huskies are down, are in it early. Get a 46-yard touchdown run from Chris Polk, followed by a 61-yard touchdown run from Chris Polk. There we go. And they're trailing 17-14 early in the second quarter. Uh, Stanford then reels off 31 unanswered points. <laughs> A lot of big plays in this one. A 70-yard touchdown run from Stephon Taylor and a 62-yard interception return from Michael Thomas as Stanford took a 48-14 <sighs> lead en route to a 65-21 victory. This is a team that like barely passed with Andrew Luck because they didn't even need to. I just... <sighs> he was 16-21 of 21 for 169 yards and two touchdowns. Andrew Luck never really like roasted the Huskies. It was more just like he, he did exactly as as much as he had to. God, they ran 44 times for 446 yards and five touchdowns in this one. Jesus Christ. Two guys, both Stephon Taylor and Tyler Gaffney, were over 100 yards. They had a third running back rush for 93 yards. (laughs) Man, Harvard-Stanford teams were something. Uh, I should never go to Road Husky. I've never been to a winning Road Husky game. I've only been to two. I've been to Stanford and Oregon, and they were both horrible losses. My experience on the road has not been quite as negative as that. Although I guess Cal is the only no, I just, well the Apple Cup win in two. Didn't you go to a terrible Colorado loss this year? 
it wasn't a great Colorado loss, but I blame that more on, you know, this year's team than on me being there. I also went to the UNF, uh, not the UNLV game, the Boise State game in the uh, Las Vegas Bowl. Oh, uh, yeah. so you could do a positive one. You also went to the Rose Bowl where they lost it. Man, when I think back on losing to Dwayne Haskins, I'm just like, <laughs> him? It wasn't just Dwayne Haskins. I know. Some other guys. I there. know. Uh, the Huskies lost three in a row late in Pac-10 play. The final game at Husky Stadium against number six Oregon before renovations. <clears throat> then at number 18 USC. And then at Oregon State with Nick Montana starting at quarterback. Before for, rallying. for which team? <laughs> for Utah. <laughs> <laughs> he was back at Blue Price that season. I feel like he could have easily transferred to Montana by this time. Where did he end up transferring to? Nick Montana. Yeah, I think there might might have been multiple stops on the Nick Montana tour. Uh, Let's see here. Ended up at Tulane. Oh. Yeah, played two seasons at Tulane. So then they rallied. uh, The final game of the regular season was the Apple Cup at CenturyLink Field, which the Huskies would call home in 2012, beating Wazoo 38-21. So with two Pac-10 teams, again, in the BCS, both Stanford and Oregon and USC, still bowl ineligible, the 7-5 Huskies. There we go. Number 15 Baylor and RG3 in the Alamo Bowl. One of the wildest college football games. Like, I mean, this was fun, too. This, it was fun to watch. Big, big 12 games <laughs> like this over the years, but they lost 67-56 despite 430 yards from Keith Price. Jermaine Curse had 198 receiving yards in his final UW game. And Price became the second player in UW history to throw for 3,000 yards in a season and set a new school record with 33 touchdowns. Kind of incredible how UW, I feel like, not consecutively, maybe consecutively? Did we go Keith Price? There was one season in between Keith Price and Jake Browning, right? There was a Siler Miles season. Yes, yeah, it was Siler Miles. Okay. Uh, Two consecutive, extremely underrated quarterbacks. Both who kind of faded in their senior years. Kind of strange how Keith Price and Jake Browning had... No, Price faded faded in his junior year. And then he got better in the senior year. Correct. Uh, It turns out it's almost like UW has really, like, way too high standards for quarterbacks. He thinks that (laughs) tall quarterbacks with pale complexion are better than they are. Pale complexion. Fancy that this the, the Husky team was seven and five, but they were they were not. I don't think talent wise, all that different from Baylor. I mean, they were they were different because Baylor had one of the best players in the country, but like across the board, talent wise, you know, probably had a better team. I mean, they did have a lot of talent on that team, as it turned out. Like, but that was also one of the most fun games to watch. I mean, I still think if RG three never gets hurt, RG three is like a revolutionary quarterback. I mean, his rookie season was incredible. RG3, his this extremely short relevance of an NFL career, is he's underrated of just how exciting RG3 was for a period of time. Like, after that year, I think everybody, people liked Luck. <clears throat> I mean, it was a legit conversation between Luck, Russ, and RG3. And it was like, you could have easily made an argument that RG3 was the best of the players. No, this was not a Josh Gordon. I don't know if it was a Josh Gordon team, but it was not a good Josh Gordon game. He didn't. 
Let's see. He didn't play it all that season. He may already have been kicked off the team by that point. But their backup quarterback was Bryce Petty. Uh, they had Kendall Wright was their leading receiver. Yeah, Kendall Wright. 1,663 yards that year. And Terrence Ganaway, who uh, I think played for the Cowboys, right, had in that game that he had 21 carries for 200 yards and five touchdowns. This was, by the way, the, this is one of the memories of this year. I remember writing like a blog post that blew up about this. This was the year that like the Nick Holt bandwagon really, you know, lost a lost a tire. I guess I don't know. <laughs> Spun out. Nick was Holt, it... highest paid defensive coordinator in God. in the Pac-10, and the Huskies' defense was so bad. Really, with I think if we looked back on it, you'd probably say there was quite a bit of talent on that defense too. Uh... Yeah, I mean, Danny Shelton, uh, Desmond Trufant. Two first-round picks. Yeah, those seem to be the most notable like players who eventually... Uh, yeah, but still. But that game, just constant scoring. Like, I remember just, like, instantly, it's just like, oh, somebody scored a touchdown, somebody scored a touchdown. And it was just back and forth the entire game. Like, it, it was what people fear football will look like. <laughs> People are like, oh, it's just like flag football nowadays. Those people, those types. Yeah. This is what they hate. And it was one of the best games we've seen. Yeah. It was another one of those, like, you can't be that upset they lost. They were leading with 940 left in the game. I mean, it's also a bowl game. You never really can be that upset that they lost the Alamo Bowl. It doesn't really matter. It's just like, but they were also playing RG3. It was great. It was fun. We got to be there. Well, I mean... They got to be there. We weren't there. We were at Katie's house. The Sounders three-peated in the U.S. Open Cup, joining the Fall River Marksmen from 1929-31 and the New York Greek Americans from 1967-69 as teams to win three consecutive Open Cups in the storied history of that competition. They won three games at Starfire before beating the Chicago Fire. 2-0 in the final at the click. The Greek-American sounds way too politically correct for 1967 and 1969. <laughs> what were you expecting them to have I don't know. I'm just saying. Like, like an uh, ethnic slur. <laughs> yeah. It was referring to themselves. They I made uh, The Sounders advanced in the CONCACAF Champions League for the first time that year, beating Panamanian side San Francisco before finishing second to Monterey in their group to reach the championship round in 2012. Uh, the Sounders started slowly in MLS play, but won seven of their final nine matches to finish second in the West before again losing in the West semifinals, giving up three goals at RSL in the opener and clawing back just two of them in the home leg. So definitely a, a, an element of Groundhog Day settling in for the Sounders is they continually won the U.S. Open Cup but lost in the first round of the MLS playoffs. Yep. Season also notable for a friendly visit by Manchester United, which won 7 nothing behind a Wayne Rooney hat trick. Uh, what happened in this one is, like, Man U saved all their best players for the second half, and the Sounders took all their starters out at halftime, and it got real ugly. Did I go to that? Possibly. I remember going to a Chelsea match. Was that? Chelsea was when we had season tickets, both Chelsea okay. and Barcelona. I don't think I went to that one, to the Man U match. I might I have watched it on TV. Can I, can I say one more thing about Husky football, though? And this is a controversial take. Because uh, I think he's generally regarded as an asshat, Chip Kelly. Uh, 
but I always felt like in that last game at UW, Oregon, did they go to the BCS championship this year? No, I think it was the year before they went to the BCS championship. O- Oregon was so much better than UW this year. I mean, they, they could have beaten us by whatever margin they wanted to. And I felt like they, it was a very like gentleman-like victory. Considering that it was the really? la- the last win at Husky, the last game at Husky Stadium, I was like, uh, it felt in- it felt intentional by Chip Kelly, where he was like respecting the history of the stadium. Uh, so they won the uh, they beat Stanford for the North that year, winning fifty three thirty at number three Stanford, and then won the Pac twelve championship over. I guess it, no, yeah, by the two thousand. These are different seasons. It had become the Pac-12 by the 2011 football season, even though it wasn't as the 2011 basketball season. Uh, and then beat number nine, Wisconsin, 45-38 in the Rose Bowl. Oh, I, I rewatched that like a month ago. Young man named Russell Wilson. Handing the ball 25. off so much. <laughs> well, he had to get ready for it. 19 of 25 oh for 296 yards. Darren Thomas in that one, 17 of 23, 268, three touchdowns. For Oregon, which finished the year ranked number four in that UW game. So this was pre-Mariota? Yeah, they, they they kicked a field goal with a minute 49 left. I guess they could have gone for a touchdown there. I don't know. Yeah, yeah it was pre-Mariota. What was the final um, score of that game? 34-17. Oh, I just remember Oregon not really running up the score when it was like they easily could have. So the Huskies had gotten within one. Oh no, I'm sorry. That's 149 left in the third quarter. So maybe you are right about this. They they only scored 34 points against the Nick Holt defense when they were Oregon. <laughs> this is an excellent point. Baylor scored 68 points, 67 points. Part of it is because their defense was a little better. Keith Price must have gotten sacked a lot because he had eight carries for minus 27 yards. Who oh boy. And threw for 140. I'm just remembering this as a as a takeaway. I remember feeling in the moment a decade ago. You know. Yes. So. All right. So the Seattle Storm coming off their championship in 2011 were were uh, stunned by Phoenix in the playoffs. They added future Hall of Famer Katie Smith to the roster, uh, bolstering the defending champions. But started slowly after beating the Mercury in their opening game following the ring ceremony. Also, one of my favorite days. The combo of the ring ceremony in, the, in a nice matinee game, followed by U2 on a gorgeous Saturday that, night. That was the night we went to field. see U2? Man, that it actually was. I, I remember being like weirdly shocked at how good that U2 show was. I was like, damn, I like U2 a lot more than I thought I did. I was like they freaking lost... Johnny Drama after. <laughs> <laughs> they lost their next game 81-74 to Minnesota, falling behind 22-0 to start the game. So the storm of a tradition, like many college basketball teams, where you stand until the team scores, and fans were standing through an entire timeout on this one. I remember it so vividly of like, oh, God, what is happening? <clears throat> uh, after playing poorly in the season's first five games, Lauren Jackson needed hip surgery, is announced while the storm was at the White House, collecting, uh, meeting President Obama, and missed two months. The Storm hovered around 500 without her, then won eight of the nine final nine after Lauren's return to finish second in the West and faced the Mercury in the opening round, a rematch of the previous year's conference finals. They won the opener 80-61, but lost in Phoenix to force game three. Uh, despite Diana Taurasi fouling out with 638 left, the Mercury still won 
at Key Arena on a Candice Dupree putback with 1.9 seconds left. And this was probably the single most devastating loss in my time working for the Storm. Really? Oh, yeah. I just remember the day after. The other one was Houston in 2005 was the same thing where they won game one and then lost the next two to go out. Uh, Three-game series. Kind of brutal. It is. But it was just like that whole time you were like, okay, they're going to find a way to win. They're going to find a way to win. Diana Taurasi's out of the game. Penny Taylor was awesome down the stretch of that one, even though she didn't score the winning bucket. And I just remember going to work the next day, just being in the daze. And I had our, our my boss at that point was someone who wasn't a sports fan, really. And she was like, what is everyone so upset about? She did not get it at all. But she worked for the team. Didn't, just didn't understand why we're so emotionally attached and invested. <laughs> it's still like even from a business perspective, it's worse for her, right? Yes. She, she was not the most emotional person I, I ever met. <laughs> uh, did I work there at the same time as them? No, I don't think so. Huh. Uh, <clears throat> I am looking forward to you just mentioning that the 2012, night of the 2012 election, Wow, we're going to talk about the Macklemore moment next year. Yes, we are. Uh, <laughs> get ready. I'm, I mean, the 2012 concerned. election was like, it was, he was all wrapped up in it in Seattle. The Mariners were bad again. Their first back-to-back losing seasons since 2005 and 2006. Felix dropped off a bit after his Cy Young season in an anemic offense, managed a league low 3.343 runs per game. About the only positive thing from this season was a strong rookie season from Michael Pineda, who made the all-star team going 9-10 and with a 3.74 ERA. And then so the Mariners traded And then the Mariners traded I loved Michael Pineda. I mean, it, it ended up working out. Pineda, I don't think, was ever the same after it. he had Tommy John, right? Yeah, and Jesus Montero is a star now. <laughs> I know. You know, it is still the Mariners. It is still the Mariners. I guess he didn't have Tommy John until 2017. I think he had like one monster year, or at least a few starts. And Montero had like, the Mariners tried to force him. I was playing fantasy baseball at this time. The Mariners, I, I, I remember having Pineda and him being good on the Mariners. And it's like, that's always a fun combo. Uh, I I would say there's actually another internet question. It was like, who is one player who you loved who only played one year for your favorite team? And I hadn't thought about this before, but Pinedo was definitely like, I really liked. He was probably the most that I liked a baseball player since the other one who who came to mind instantly. I mean, Durant is maybe one. Who only played one year? Jose Cruz Jr. Though <laughs> that, I had that thought. Yeah, that's the, that's the one where I was like, just the, the, if if Jose Cruz Jr. would have played longer, same with Michael Pineda on the Mariners, we would have liked them less. Probably true. So that that's kind of part of it, but uh, that was it was very sad to see Pineda go. All right, so this was a year of the NBA lockout. Wow, a lot of, I don't even remember that NFL lockout. I mean, it didn't miss any time. It just pushed back the offseason, a weird offseason. So bef- but the two- we're talking about the 2010-11 season before the lockout. The Blazers started 12-14 and 14, but still won 48 games despite, uh, stop me if you've heard this before, a series of injuries. 
Craig Oden was ruled out for the season with microfracturing knee surgery on November 17th. Well, Brandon Roy's knees really caught up with him. He was sidelined for two months starting in December and returned as a backup to Wesley Matthews. Played just eight minutes in the Game 2 loss at Dallas as the Blazers went behind 2-0 in this first-round series that they were frequently picked to win, including by yours truly. Roy scored 16 points in Game 3, and then... Game four, a game we talked about when we inducted Roy into the Pelton Cast Hall of Fame a few weeks ago. That was the game where he has a huge fourth quarter uh, the day before Easter. The Blazers come back from a big deficit to tie the series. It was the last great moment for Brandon Roy in a basketball <sighs> uniform, certainly in a Portland uniform. The Blazers lost the next two. Dallas went on to win the championship that year after I picked against them in the first round. <laughs> And Brandon Roy never played in Portland again. They, he was amnestied after the lockout concluded. Wow. Yeah. Dallas won the championship that year? Yeah, they beat Miami. No, that was the year that they beat Miami. I was thinking that they won the year that Katie and I lived together. Did they? No. That was the year they lost in the finals to Miami. Okay, so they played each other twice, like four years apart. They lost to the Shaq D-Way Miami team. And then Correct. beat in the first year of the LeBron of the Big Three team. Correct. All right, that's sports in 2011. Man, should we talk about music? Uh, sure. <laughs> I would say 2011 is one of my favorite music years. Really? Yeah. I mean, at the top of the list here, uh, an album that I feel like I don't know if you agree with me. I feel like it's been completely lost to history. But was the the album I listened to by far the most in 2011, and held up stunningly strong on the re-listen, which is Watch the Throne. I see some people occasionally talk about Watch the Throne. I I don't know if I would say that it's been, it has been lost to history in as much as it's not like, it's not considered a classic album by almost anybody. It's not like it's like a Pigeons and Planes album or something. You know, like they don't have it on their list of like you can only keep two or whatever. Watch the Throne's rarely on there. But I, at the same time, I don't think it's regarded poorly. And the, like, some of the, the Jay-Z verse on uh, <clears throat> No Church in the Wild, is that the song? Uh, there's, there's a Jay-Z verse where I just, like, I remember reading it and being like, oh, this is the best rapper on earth. I mean, which is interesting because his, his competition for that throne at that point was on, also on the album. Oh, I mean, Kanye West has has never been like, I'm talking like purely as a rapper. I see what you're saying, yes. And and like, is Pius Pius, because God loves Pius, Socrates' ass, who's biased to y'all seek? It was just like, Jay-Z was on another level. And it's like, you have like early Frank... Oh, Kanye. I remember listening to it like right when it came out, the whole record. And there there are definitely moments where it's like this is up there with the densest that Jay-Z got, I feel like, in a good way. Um, the record in general, like you kind of thought going, you're like, whoa, Kanye and Jay-Z together. You're like, this is going to be all hits. And then yes. it, it, there were some hits, <clears throat> but it felt like they had to force it, right? Like – a little bit. Otis Otis was one that right away was just like, okay, yep, yeah, that that's great. 
<laughs> but it was just like the sample was really what stood out from it, you know? Right. And then the song's called Otis. But then being at the show, like I remember I listened to the record probably a lot because I knew the songs, but I didn't know them in the way that I would know the songs on a Kanye album, whereas like I know every part of it. And then going to that show at the Tacoma Dome, a Friday night in Tacoma, which is just like never a good situation when you have to get to Tacoma <laughs> on a Friday night. It's never a good situation going to Tacoma on any weekday, but like. I remember driving down there. I think we felt like we were late, but then, of course, the show started crazy late. Um, and over this time... This was you separately. I went, I went with the famous cousin Katie, so we watched UW play UC Santa Barbara and win 87-80. <laughs> we watched that on TV at some bar. You two who, who are borderline unemployed, you could just fucking... <laughs> <laughs> like, well, go to, go to Tacoma at whatever time oh, you want to go to first, Tacoma okay. on a Friday. Okay. This was nine days before the start of the NBA season after the lockout. So I was at that point finishing up the pro basketball prospectus book that came out the following Monday and also preparing to host a Christmas party on Sunday. So put on I was right on around Christmas. Being busy, being busy for this one. But I had been listening to Watch the Throne like non. That was like the soundtrack of me writing that year's pro basketball prospectus. Really? Also, by the way, we haven't mentioned this, but this was the year we that you lived here. Wow. I lived there. A weird time. <laughs> I mean, I lived there for like a month. <laughs> it was longer than that, I think. Was it? I think it was a solid couple months. Uh, possibly it was. I think I I moved in. Well, no, it was basically just the month of November. I moved. No, you in... must have been there in October, right? Well, I I'm, I'm sure you were here in October. I moved in on Halloween weekend. I think. You think I was there the entire time? Maybe it was two months. I moved into my house on December first. Yeah, because I remember you moving in right after the storm season ended. Maybe it was all of October and all of November. It's funny because like we lived together but didn't interact with each other all that much. Nope. <laughs> that's one of my that, that was really the origins of the Pelton cast. <laughs> I'm gonna rewrite history. A defining memory is like you got me into watching Sunny. It's always Sunny in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. I had never watched before that. And yeah. then also the league, which came on after that. Yep, that that was good a times. good time for it's always sunny in Philadelphia. They had the hurricane episode that we all watched together, and I think Jan watched it with us too. Um but that I that just I just had no expectations for the show, you know? And then was freaking blown away. Whereas like, oh it was, a great it, show. it was one of those moments where I'm like, oh yeah, this is Jay-Z and Kanye. Like doing Jay-Z and Kanye hits and also doing Watch the Throne, like, why was I not excited for this? I was like, I would be excited for Jay-Z or Kanye. Why would I not be doubly excited for them together? I think it was just having to drive to, to Tacoma. <laughs> but get, getting I, there. Makes sense. And then, so they go through, and I remember every Watch the Throne song, and like, I, I had no real expectations for them, and I was like, wow, that track bangs, that track bangs. It's like, oh my god. And then the very end, so this was the peak of when they were doing In Paris over and over and over again. Just being right, like... Quote from the Wikipedia. Originally performed three times in a row, but as the tour progressed, the song was regularly performed up to ten times in succession, with the record being eleven times in Paris. Oh, uh, that's when they did it eleven times? Yep. Wow. When when Kanye goes, when he does the, again, and you're just like, 
Do it, Kanye. <laughs> I didn't want it to ever stop. I I apparently tweeted about this. Really? In 2011. And not going to lie, disappointed we only got five renditions. Oh, we only got five. Figured I was going to guess that we had really eight. It would really get good around number seven or eight. That, that tweet posted at 12.10 a.m. on December 17th. I would have definitely taken eight or else. We only got five. Yeah. Hmm. What a disappointment. Let me get my money back. <laughs> that was like one of the most brilliant things that was ever conceived, though. Where they were, and the track became a mass. It's the biggest song from the album, and I feel like this definitely was part of the story. Where they're just like, you don't recognize this song is a hit, and we are going to force you to recognize that the song is a hit. I feel like people had already recognized. I think you're the, exaggerating that. Them doing it over and over and over again was definitely part of it, though. Like, it, it pushed it. It pushed the story forward. Yes. Mrs. Fantasy Genius agrees. Okay, so the other notable... Uh, another notable music thing that year. The date was November 15th, 2011. New albums. Both Take Care from Drake... And Camp from Childish Gambino dropping on the same day. Well, you're acting like this was these were comparable things, which maybe in 2020 these are comparable things. But like Camp was Camp was an indie album when it came out. But we were pretty fucking excited about Camp. I, been, I don't remember. Hated it. I will wow. tell you, I I Pitchfork destroyed this record, and I remember reading that before listening to it. And then I, like, I was so clouded by that. And they were like, God, where's the Pitchfork review? They gave it a 1.6, (laughs) which probably, I feel like it only, like, adds to the story. Uh, And I remember reading, like, Childish Gambino was not, like, he was a big artist. But we're talking 1,000th where he is now, you know? And and I don't know if I'd go that far. Sold 242,000 copies. Jesus Christ. Um, But it's still, we're talking very, very far off from like one of the biggest hip hop pop artists in the world. It was not there. Uh, But I I had read that review and I was just like, this music is fucking terrible. Because I'd I'd read the like super negative review before I listened to it, so I was totally clouded. Uh, on the record, Gambino backlash. I didn't. I and I remember listening to. I was just like, kind of. I kind of written him off. And then the next record came out, and I was like, oh, like th- I remember listening to three thousand and five, and I was like, oh, I might have been wrong, or Pitchfork <laughs> was wrong, or whatever, you know. First off, under any circumstance, assume you were wrong. Uh, I, I would say I like the story he tells at the end of the album that's on that power as much as almost anything that he's done musically. What is, what is the story? I don't, I don't even know. It's a story about like summer camp, which is the name, uh-huh. like, hence the name of the album. Wow. So. Spin gave because the internet a two out of 10. I feel like it was like, it was chic to shit on childish Gambino's music. And then now it's probably chic to try to get him to do a fucking interview with you. Um, now it's now it's chic to shit on Drake's music. Is it? I don't know. Just, just the tussy slide. Come on. Well, it's terrible. But I feel like taking care <clears throat> is like Drake. I, I don't know if I want to say perfecting, but 
he he took his his formula to a new level here. Oh, this is this is the Drake record. Well, I don't actually. I'm going to take that back. It's the next one. There are a lot of the Drake records. Nothing was the same as when that that was when Drake. That's like the the, the full vision of Drake. When he fully achieved, like when I'm sure this was in your top songs the decade or whatever, he hadn't fully achieved pop stardom as he did with "Hold On, We're Going Home." Quite on "Take Care." I mean, the motto is pretty pretty high up there. It's still a rap song, you know. Fair. I I feel like so the the title track. Like, you only live once. You get... Man, people are saying YOLO 2011. I know YOLO. Uh, Anytime you get Drake and Rihanna together for a duet, that's like right in my sweet spot. But the most memorable song on this album for me is Marvin's Room. Really? And that's because of a thing that happened in late June 2011. What? <laughs> I'm so ready for this. Which is that Jason Richardson tweeted about me. <laughs> How does this have to do with Drake? Wait for it. Uh, I had written a story uh, for ESPN Insider talking about free agents that uh, I thought teams should be careful with their offers to because they might not age particularly well. And without context, on June 27, 2011, Jason Richardson tweets from at jrich23, who the hell is Kevin Pelton? (laughs) (laughs) A great moment as... People tried to figure out why we why we were beefing, mm-hmm. which was pretty one sided. I thought this was hilarious. Uh huh. Try to play it off. I replied to him, "Is this because his previous tweet <clears throat> had been about whether you like more Marvin's Room or some other song from this album?" And, it, and my reply was, "Is this because I didn't like Marvin's Room?" <laughs> which it turns out actually Marvin's Room was great. I do like Marvin's Room. I hadn't heard it at the time. I I tweeted this, but uh, uh, this was definitely like a, a big thing on a tiny sector of the internet for a couple of days there. Ah, uh, so good. I mean, t- uh, trust issues was the other one, which didn't end up making the album. Actually, that didn't come out until Care Package. Wow, look at that. Yeah. Uh, to me, the you've got Gil Scott Heron, Jamie XX, Drake, and Rihanna on Take Care, like just everything, everything you could be looking for. I wasn't done talking about Jade Rich. You weren't what? I wasn't done talking about Jade Rich. Oh, okay. Sorry, sorry. Go ahead. There's so he ended up signing a four-year, $25 million contract uh-huh. after the lockout. The Magic then dumped his contract on the Sixers after one season as part of the Dwight Howard trade, and he played just 52 games the remainder of his career due to injury. You're taking a victory lap on Jason Richardson right now? I'm, I'm just giving you the facts. Didn't he tweet it again? Who the hell is Kevin Pelton? He did, because I said I didn't think he was going to play again after he had the surgery to implant new cartilage in his knee. He clearly and... knew who you were the second time he tweeted no, about it. No, there's no way he remembered. So he, is he tweeting who the hell is X often? This time he just said, who is Kevin Pelton the second time? Why is Not it just you? I'm sorry, but th- there's a theme to this. He either says it about everybody, or he actually knew who you were, and was he was trying to develop a running joke. I just don't think he would remember it from three years earlier. He has not tweeted who the hell very often, only two times, according to this. What was the other time? Oh my god. 
Please uh, let it be. Who, who the hell is Dan Devine? <laughs> I know. At AT&T store and found out my 10-year-old daughter is $300 over on text message. Who the hell is she texting? Definitely getting a call from dad tomorrow. LOL. Wow. You're, it's reserved for you in the AT&T store? No, I think it was uh, for his daughter. <laughs> oh, man. <clears throat> and he, it's the only time he ever tweeted who is. And that's a, then got texted. I don't know, man. He's, he's the... Jason Richardson is like he either has like a long-term grudge against you or he was trying to build up like a really hilarious like repeat, repeating joke. <laughs> Jay Rich was going to be was like quite so funny when I saw it again although it didn't it wasn't the same kind of sensation because it wasn't who the hell is Kevin Feldman. That's just got a great ring to it. <laughs> who the hell and is naturally, Kevin Feldman? Naturally when that book When was the last time you retweeted group, that? <laughs> I, I haven't since 2011. You might want to go back and do that again sometime soon. I will. Yeah, I'll probably. I'm probably going to tweet about this discussion. I would say. Uh, it the uh, the book that I mentioned the the next year, the Pro Basketball Prospectus. The author bio said, "Who the hell is Kevin Pelton?" And then went into the bio. <laughs> oh man, I love that you just took a victory lap on J Rich too. Not cool. I just shared the facts. I'm not saying I'm happy he got injured. I'm not that. I want, wanted him to stay healthy. Uh, so other music in 2011. It, it really felt like 2011 was it, the hip-hop kind of as we know it for the next decade. A lot of it happening kind of early phases here. I mean, you have the Goblin album by Tyler, the creator. Um, like odd futures taking over the world and like what we consider like cool hip-hop r&b internet music really starts around this time period this is the first time i think we've talked about odd future yeah i don't think their mix their mixtape doesn't come out until 2012 technically but this is the beginning of it yes frank ocean self-released nostalgia ultra in 2011 Nostalgia Ultra came out in 2011? Yeah, I guess I, I missed this because it was an official release. Okay. <laughs> uh, Novocaine, yeah, I missed this. Uh, yeah, I was, scrolling th- I was scrolling through every album, but like, I, man, I think this was before then. Maybe Yonkers had come out. I think it was earlier. I'd gotten holds at the Vera Project. Yeah, because Bastard came out in 2009. Uh, I'd gotten hold of the Vera Project for a group called Odd, Odd Future that I never heard of, <clears throat> and this is the Vera Project of all places. Odd Future was like people on the internet loved them, Tower the Creator, or they hated him. Right? This was not like Tower the Creator as he's perceived now. Right? Like Tower the Creator version 2.0. It, it was like. He was scary at the time, but also exciting. And I remember having a conversation with the agent, which the show has never happened, the VR project, but like having a conversation with the agents being like, dude, I just, I can't do this. You know, <laughs> I was like that this place, I cannot do this show. I was like, it would be extremely exciting, but it is not happening here at this inclusive space. Cause Tyler, the creator was scary. Uh, by, 2011 we had a better sense of who everybody was as individuals 
you know, like we knew we had a better sense of like Earl was like a little bit less like distant or whatever. You know, he was like back from from his uh, 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 being banished. And it was like, we, we knew who Odd Future was by then. But when Nostalgia Ultra came out, I remember downloading it because it was a free download. Uh, and they had the sample of the Eagles on American Wedding. And I remember playing it in my office and people in my office shitting on it. I was like, I think you might be wrong here. You know, it was one of those things where you listen to it for the first time and people being like, what is this? And people who consider themselves to be hipsters. And I'm sure fucking love Frank Ocean now. And I was just like, I think you might be wrong. This might be incredible. And like, uh, from that day forward, I was like, I think this dude might be great. Like, I'll still, American Wedding's not like available anywhere except for YouTube, but I'll just pull up the YouTube and listen to it at least five times a year. It's the perfect song. Okay. Do you know what I'm talking about? I don't, I don't remember American Wedding. Man. I remember Novocaine, certainly. Well, Novocaine was actually released as a single. Like, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Nostalgia Ultra was the, the first independent release from the most important artist in the last decade. Ugh. You okay there? <laughs> I'm just I'm just bothered that I didn't that I didn't uh, I didn't see that on there. Uh, but I also want to mention you mentioned November fifteenth as the date that Take Care came out plus Camp. Also a week earlier, Blue Slide Park by Mac Miller, the debut album from Mac Miller, which again talking about artists who like would shape what hip hop would look like for the next ten years after that. Mm-hmm. And the most insane Vera Project show that maybe ever existed. Um, <laughs> I think this was in like, I think this was in 2011. He just had mixtapes out and should have, again, way, way, way too big to be playing in a venue with no security whatsoever. Um, I walked in and like Mac Miller initially started out as like a weed rapper, like friend of Wiz Khalifa. And I was at the Vera Project Gala it was happening the same night as the Mac Miller show. It was insanely sold out. Like, Hundreds, hundreds plus more people over capacity. And I walked into the balcony after the gala and I stood there and there was just a cloud of smoke over this, over the crowd. And I was just like, Jesus Christ, somebody had like broken a door because they were upset about not being able to get in. I walked outside and Grinch was standing there outside high as fuck or whatever. (laughs) And I'm just like, dude, what happened? He's like, yeah, man, it's crazy. (laughs) <laughs> I was like, yeah, I'm going to have to deal with a bunch of bullshit because of this, uh, which I did. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. All right, what else from 2011? Well, I, I wanted to, to comment on one of your notes in the notes, uh, and you put Boney Vare debut, which I have to say... So the record self-titled Boney Vare came out in 2011. And uh-huh. I'm so sorry. You, you've been exposed as listening to Dad Rock, but not actually having children. If you think self-titled Boney Vare by Boney Vare is the debut record. I thought you had mentioned it being their debut. That was, that was my, why I put it. 
and you had looked and said, oh, that was 2011. But I guess you, I misremembered what you said. <laughs> Exposed. If, <laughs> you think, I mean, you so would, you think you're into dad rock and you don't remember you forever, know, forever, for Emma forever ago? You know that my dad rock is more in the uh, death cab. Where the you are a you're like a little thing. bit M O M O R, a little bit like middle of the road dad rock. Bony Bear is a little yeah, bit too edgy for you. To. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I enjoyed listening. I enjoyed listening oh, to man. the self-titled album when I did. <sighs> Probably in 2015. No, it might have been in 2020. Oh wow! Look, if you had kids, you would have listened to that in 2011, and you would have been like, "Oh, pretty solid follow-up." <laughs> <laughs> That's what you would have said. You'd have your like cafe Vita cup in your hand and been like, hmm, really uh, pushing the sound forward there. Oh, and helplessness blues. I don't know if that qualifies as dead rock, but you just listen to that too. No, no. I oh my God. That's, that's, I'm saying that's what I was listening to instead. Well, I'm going to say, I'm surprised you didn't call that the fleet Fox's debut album. I, I'm aware of when fleet Fox's <laughs> debut. We talked about it. We literally oh, talked about it on the podcast. <laughs> Uh, that's all that really stands out to me, music, music-wise from 2011, but. Alright. Well, so well, I'm sure we've been talking for like five hours. That's definitely true. On the TV front, 2011 marked the debut of a show called Game of Thrones that I also have not watched. <laughs> I'm sure that you haven't. <clears throat> Uh, oh my God! The show that's after it, Jesus Christ. Um, uh, well, I was something else I was busy watching instead. Uh, on, on Game of Thrones for a moment, a lot of people have commented lately because we just passed the one year anniversary of the finale of Game of Thrones, and it's kind of incredible. I didn't think this was possible, to be honest. How forgotten culturally Game of Thrones has been in the last year. I mean, I just listened to a podcast about Game of Zones, so I don't feel like it's that forgotten. What What is the Game of Zones podcast about? Can you explain this to me? Well, Game of Zones is a, is a video series. Okay. That's parodying Game of Thrones with NBA people. Okay. But the creators of it were on Zach Lowe's podcast last week. Are they still the making Game of Zones? This was the finale. I mean, they're a year behind, basically. And they parody Game of Thrones? Yes. Okay, well, I'm saying in general, like, there are certain shows that continue to exist in the culture. Like, you constantly see whatever. I mean, newer things, but, like, you constantly see succession memes and things like that. SpongeBob, stuff like that. Um, I see people talking about Game of Thrones and posting memes about Game of I think about Game of Thrones so little and I feel like, I mean, in 2011, I remember Third Paul and Brother Reese got, like, the DVDs or something of season one. And then I think he read every single book after that. He read, like, 40,000 pages of book. Uh, <clears throat> and I remember talking to him, being like, oh, what are you up to? And he was like, I'm just going to be at home reading Game of Thrones. And me being like, <laughs> I was just like, what the fuck is this thing? Like, what are you talking about? And I, I started watching season one in, like, January 2012. And then it's one of those things where you watch the first episode and you're like, all right, I want to watch every single episode of this TV show forever and ever. Uh, but if you don't, until you're in, 
it's hard to be in. Uh, but like once you get, once you even watch, I, I was reading, I remember reading in to the, at the end of 2011, a review of the best TV episodes of 2011. And there was a game of Thrones episode in there, probably the first episode. And they were talking how brilliant it was. I was like, man, I got to see the show or whatever. And then obviously it became a cultural phenomenon. Uh, but th- this was, it's interesting how that can happen with <clears throat> like IP that, it was around in the world, you know what I mean? Like, Game of Thrones had been around for a decade plus before this, and I just had never heard of it. But there obviously were so many people who were fans of it, and then by becoming a TV show, became a cultural phenomenon instantly, basically. Especially by season two. Much the same as the show that debuted <clears throat> oh, in 2011. God. Franklin and Bash! No. Launching Camilla and Johnny's career. Was he Bash or Franklin? He was he was neither Bash nor Franklin. Oh. Uh, I'm pretty sure Franklin was Breckenmeyer. <clears throat> oh God, Mark it was Gosselin. it was Breckenmeyer and Mark Falgasser. Camille Nanjiani's career was definitely launched before this. I'm joking. About he was that. on a Chappelle show sketch. Wait, was he? Yeah. I don't remember that. The other another thing I remember. He's on the sketch was... where you're like buying a cell phone, and Camille Nanjiani is. That was quite a bit earlier. Are you sure that's not Portlandia? Oh, maybe that is Portlandia. Sorry. Which also debuted in 2011, coincidentally. I don't, how much have we talked Portlandia much on this podcast? I don't think really I mean, at all. It was such an on-the-nose parody or a satire, I guess, of something that was right to be <clears throat> satirized. Is that the right term? I don't know. Uh, and the the main thing about Portlandia, though, is so they filmed it, Fred Armand's Armisen and Carrie Brownstein from Sleater Kinney during the summer in Portland. And so they aired these episodes during like the winter in like January and February. Yeah, they debuted in January. And it would be so sunny and beautiful in Portland. It was like, how do I go to that place? (laughs) Because it doesn't exist right now. I want to go there right now. I think 2012 was when we went to the Portlandia live show, right? That seems about right, yeah. I think that would have been around the start of season two. <clears throat> uh, the very, very, very beginning of Portlandia, the first episode, everything about it felt perfect. It, was, the first episode was at the farm-to-table, like, yeah. it's, what was the origin of this? I mean, the first was ever raised? sketch was The Dream of the 90s is Alive in Portland. Oh, yeah. And then I remember going, God, I don't remember what year, maybe 2012? I drove with Chris to Berkeley to go to an atmosphere at the Greek theater in Berkeley. And we stopped in Portland on the way down and stopped at like an old timey themed bar in Portland. And it was just like, Oh yeah, this is what Portland is. You know, (laughs) it's like, yeah, this all checks out. If I know anything about Portlandia, this is dead on. But that the dream of the 1890s is alive in Portland was like, it was it was perfect. It was exactly what we were looking for. And then the washed out theme too, like when when they oh, play yeah. that, the feel it all around, and then people are like doing wacky shit in Portland in the theme. It's like, God damn, I wanna be there. But yeah, Portland summers, like I've been I haven't been to Portland that much in the summer, but I mean I mean I haven't really. I mean it's not that spring. different than Seattle in the summer. Where it's just like no. the best place on earth is the Pacific Northwest in the summer. 
Yeah, it's not a Portland versus Seattle statement. It's a Northwest in the summer versus Northwest in the winter statement. Exactly. Yeah, despite whichever place you move to, Chris Wheeler. Like, the, <laughs> it is, uh, it's the right decision over the summer. Either one. All right, on the movie front... Uh, he moved to Seattle. I I'm, I'm, hope that you're having a great time. He, 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 <clears throat> I don't know if he's here yet. <clears throat> I, that may have been delayed by the, you know, the pandemic. Ah. Uh, 2012 brought us Moneyball, the movie. Okay, never heard of it. Oh, really? No. And uh, Bridesmaids. <clears throat> Two movies I definitely did not see in the year 2011. I went to go see Moneyball in the theater. That was like probably the only movie I saw in a theater in like a five-year span. Really? I really look back on this as like, this was just before I had my first of 15 children. Um, and I look back on 2011 nine eight ten seven six as a missed opportunity for just going to places <laughs> especially <laughs> movies like what was i doing with my life every single night that i spent at home that i wasn't eating at a restaurant sitting there in the restaurant and eating and going to a movie especially now that you think about it in the quarantine like i had all we, i could have gone to anything i could have done anything i wanted to and there were so many nights. There were so many. Mo- I didn't go to see Moneyball. I didn't go to see Bridesmaids. What the fuck was I doing? <laughs> Probably a lot of watching baseball and worried about your fantasy team. I definitely. I just like sat and watched on David Sykes's. What is the MLB thing called? Extra innings or something? Sounds right. <clears throat> I remember just sitting and watching some Gio Gonzalez starts. <sighs> That's the saddest thing I've ever heard. Just this is some advice for people out there. Don't pay attention to fantasy baseball when you're able to safely go out into the world and do things before you have children, because it gets terrible after that. Wow! <laughs> Especially when you get to number fifteen. Uh, just a little bit of advice, because oh, wow. 2011 was my last year without without a child. It's true. On that note... I, I also should say that I think The Walking Dead... Did we talk about The Walking Dead last week? Yeah, The Walking Dead had already premiered. Okay, well, it was 2011. It was when I was staying at your house. That's when you started watching it. Yeah, that me and Mrs. Fantasy Genius watched it on, like, Halloween weekend. And it was a pretty cool time to watch a show. <sighs> Not right. Now I'm just depressed about how I could have done stuff with my life back in 2011. Uh, couldn't we all... All right. Thanks for listening. (laughs) Thanks. Okay. Bumbershoot 2011. So uh, I think this was the year that if I remember correctly. Oh, yeah. See, this is a good one we had to talk about. Um, I think I was saying to you that they mistakenly let me be part of a committee that booked Bumbershoot. That is correct. And... Is this the right year that I'm looking at? 6-1-2011. Oh, okay, last year's acts. Okay, they were... they were. So I think this might have been the first year that I was a part of it. Maybe this was the second year. Uh, <clears throat> I remember Jan going to go see Hollow Notes, and I think Fits in the Tantrums opened for Hollow Notes, which we eventually saw Fitz and the Tantrums play outside before the weekend. Is that right? Did that happen? 
Uh, it's possible that happened. I, I don't know how those consecutive artists played, but I'm pretty sure we went to a bumper shoot where Fitz and the Tantrums played right before the weekend, a few years later. The weekend was more memorable. I remember that. The weekend. <laughs> not, not the weekend. Yes. So this was the, weekend, no e. the bummer shoot that I mentioned Wiz Khalifa. Like, Wiz Khalifa was one of the biggest hip-hop artists in the world in 2011. It was like... Black and Yellow. Black and Yellow. Taking the world by storm. Always hated that song. Um, well, I mean, obviously. Yeah, I'm not good. Fucking Pittsburgh Steelers song. We still weren't over it. We hadn't won a Super Bowl at the time. Correct. But... <clears throat> Wiz Khalifa was headlining. Main stage was in Key Arena. This, I think, was the first year that the main stage was in Key Arena for Bummer Shoot. Wiz Khalifa was headlining, and playing before him, ready for his star-making performance, was Macklemore. And this was when he brought out Sean Kemp. Aw- there you go. Awkwardly to stand there, but it was like I remember. What are you? Macklemore. Oscars was open. He's on stage. Oh, what a year for Sean. Great Kemp. moment for Sean Kemp in 2011. <laughs> But this was like, oh, Macklemore is going to be like a massive star into that. Like this was right before it happened. But it it was clear like that there were more people at that show. A lot of people were excited about Wiz Khalifa. There were as many people at that show excited for Macklemore as there were for Wiz Khalifa. And he went on to sell out. I mean, I think a Macklemore jersey hangs in the rafters of Key Arena, if I recall correctly. Well, nothing, nothing hangs in the rafters Still, anymore. to this day, under construction. Yeah, no, they were like, no. the, the roof has to remain, and the Macklemore jersey has to stay up there. <laughs> Bad news, the Macklemore banner was taken down were, before, well before. <laughs> they were like, the Macklemore banner, it's just do what you will with the space. And, and the time capsule that we put up there during the 96 NBA Finals. What happened to that? About. Wait, did, we, did you ever actually no. get an answer to that? No, I might need to try it, see if Randy can... Help with that. Why? Why would Randy be able to help with that? He he might have some connections. Okay, I mean I, I'm not questioning. I'm just under, asking why. If Randy is listening, I'm not saying that Randy wouldn't know how to do it. I'm just asking why you would say that. But Randy knows people. He does. Uh, but yeah, th- that performance at Bumbershoot was the first time that I'm sure that Macklemore played Key Arena, and the first of many times after that, really. Yep. So that was extremely memorable. And uh, if this was a year that I was on the uh, <laughs> bummer board, I'd take full credit for it. There you go. Yeah, Macklemore would have been nothing without me. Same with Hall & Oates, too. Throw them in there. <laughs> right. I, I went to go see Hall and & Oates, and Jan went early to go watch Fits of the Tantrums and was raving about it. Of course. Before uh, Baby Fantasy Genius became a big Fits in the Tantrum fan. I wonder if he remembers anything about them. Probably not. I doubt, very doubtful. Man, this is like a who's who of local artists from Seattle in 2011. It really is like just tons. Like, it's pretty incredible. Starfucker, Shabazz Palaces, Champagne Champagne. What chance was it? Bumper shoot in 2015? 2015? Yeah. That was the year the weekend was there. I don't think I went. Canceled. I saw Chance at Sasquatch earlier on. I mean, you went to the weekend. We were just talking about it. He played that same day? 
he must have canceled because I don't remember this. But he was on the bill for Saturday. Originally. There you go. All right. There you go.